Welcome to episode 5 of The Radicals, a podcast version of the novel The Radicals, written by me, Marilyn Krasner. The Radicals is narrated by Amanda Friedlander. Intro and outro music by Siobhan Hurd. Links in the show notes. Dee, it's your turn to share, group leader says. Against my better judgment, I need to say something about today before I explode. After I sent the text to Sally and drove away from Marbles for probably the last time ever, I had this eerie feeling like I had lost the handle of a rope or something that was keeping me grounded. I take a deep breath. I saw an old associate today. It was completely by accident, but it left me feeling pretty shitty. She's super old and not that with it, and even she was looking at me like, get it the fuck together. What is wrong with you? Was she an associate from your feminist group? I sigh and reconsider my decision to bring marbles up in here. I will try a proven rant instead. No, see, a group is a collection of amateurs. They group up to fight one issue, like opposition to a halfway house or some other nimby bullshit. Groups have a leader, usually one dude with a superiority complex who sees all the other group members as extensions of himself. He doesn't listen to anyone else's opinions or suggestions. Group leader rolls her eyes. What did you want to say about this associate, D? Not much. It was just a surprise to see her after so long. Her health isn't great. She was mean to her caretaker, dude, and I couldn't wait to get the fuck away from her. I would not have even gone in, I mean, if it's just a coincidence. Same place, same time. LA is so big, right? How often do you just see people? I push out a laugh that sounds like what you would say if you sneak up on someone. Ha! No one else is laughing. Maybe they are so stunned that difficult dyke is sharing that they didn't listen to any of the words that came out of my mouth. I seen my uncle at a beach cross town. Oh, nope. That dude's not waiting. Fucking trippy, you know? One day we're chilling at my Nana's, and the next day, boom, his fat ass was swimming in the water while me and my buddies were hanging out in the parking lot. I didn't even know he was going to be there. Fucking master storytellers in this place. I look around at each of the people in circle. This rainbow coalition of rule breakers. My bad luck club. I can't wait until I don't have to come here anymore. It feels dirty in here. You can't force connection between people. I hardly said anything, and now I have a vulnerability hangover. This is why I don't share. It's too intimate. I don't want these dirt bags to see inside of me. I'm afraid they will leave a mess while they're in there. I just need to believe nobody was listening. I've described Sally in many ways over the years. The word that suits her best is damage. She is damage, and she causes damage. She's like a match to a haystack that's been drying all summer in the sun. Her destruction is often quick and careless. If she finds out where I live or anything about me, like the fact that I have a relationship and a baby, 
She will try to take those away from me because I left her. I know how she works. She has a lifetime worth of hard-done-by stories that she stews until she blows like an unattended pressure cooker. Even though Sally is destructive, I think I'm one of her weaknesses. She will do anything for me, or she would have before I went away. My main goal is to keep her on my side, focused, and in touch. Getting in touch with Sally is risky, but she is so skilled at fucking people's lives up, men's lives mostly. By extension, she has messed up quite a few lives of the women associated with the men. We call that collateral damage, and the women landed on their feet, as women often do after breakups or other big life changes. With Carl, Sally will be able to put the brakes on his idiotic activities. She's the one who broke the front window of a bank in the hopes that she could get some money. She's the one who stole the food truck and fed about 20 vagrants at the park. She's the one who is most likely to have killed someone if they are an asshole or somehow get in the way of whatever mission she's on. She is truly dangerous. The night I met Sally, she punched me in the face. She is a sensitive person, and I was talking too much about football culture. We met at a bar, a real dirty dive. Monday night football was on, and the losers I went to high school with went to the bar to watch the game. Sally was tired of listening to me talk, and she showed me her distaste by punching me in the cheek. Hard. I don't know why I didn't get away from her at that moment. The other option was to hit her back, but I was scared of her. She had this I-don't-give-a-fuck way about her that intimidated me. In the short time we hung out that night, we clicked. I am not sure what I would have done if someone had been there to give me the three C's speech. If I left her then and went back to my mom's house and watched TV with Luke and Owen, who knows what would have happened to me. Instead, I sat there with a sore face and listened to one of her lectures, which boiled down to, If you fucking hate football and the misogyny culture, do something about it. Don't blah 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 to me. I'm not the enemy, they're the enemy, she said as she pointed at everyone else in the bar. I admired the spiked leather cuff on her wrist as she started making pinching movements with her fingers. I'm crushing their heads. You ever seen that? I crushed your head, she yelled. A couple of people in the bar looked our way. Fucking funny. I stared back at one guy. Now that I think about it, that would have been the first time I tried the stare on somebody. It worked. He looked away. I started crushing heads as well. Heads of the football players on the TV. Heads of the losers I went to high school with. Finally, Sally's head, even though there was a risk that she might punch me again. We laughed together like young women having a good time at the bar, not watching Monday Night Football. All of a sudden, I had a friend. Why did you hit me? I was trying to stop your fucking useless complaining. You only get so many breaths in this life, don't waste them with non-essential subject matter. I looked around the bar at the crowd staring at the TV. Guys sitting with one bar stool between them so nobody would ever get the idea that they wanted to fuck each other. Come on. Sally walked out the front door. I followed. Of course I followed. Frida is crying. It's bottle time. I go to the kitchenette, open the fridge, and pull out one of the glass bottles with breast milk suctioned out of Cecilia's breast in the past 24 hours. Could it be the milk from the fridge screwing with the girl's tummy? Frida is looking up at me. She is hungry and grumpy, and it's my fault. Lately, I've been zoning out and staring at nothing for long periods of time. 
When I snap out of whatever it is, I can't figure out how long I've been spacing out, but it scares me a little. I'll finish my story while we wait for your milk to warm up. Do you want to hear it? I followed Sally and saw that she was shaking a can of spray paint. The sound was exciting because I had always wanted to use spray paint. You know? Well, you don't know. Do you, new person? It's like putting your thoughts writ large on a wall and running away so nobody knows it was you. Hopefully the statement will still be there the next day so you can drive by slowly admiring your handiwork. Sally was obviously experienced at all this, and she took the spray paint and she covered the word Monday on the sign hanging next to the main door to the bar that said Monday Night Football with black paint. Taking another spray can out of her messenger bag and shaking it, she wrote misogynist over the black paint with the pink paint. The sign said misogynist night football here every week. It only lasted for a couple of seconds because the black paint hadn't dried. The pink paint and the black paint dripped down the sign, and it said Monday Night Football here every week, again as we ran away laughing. Frida doesn't seem excited by my story. Sally said she was sorry for hitting me and asked me to give her a ride. Next thing I know, we are in this place with all of these people, and I was tripping out because we turned off from the main road of the city I grew up in, and I had no idea these people had their own community. I was scared, kind of, and I was intrigued. They were living rough. It was like going to a film set because it had some of the stuff you would expect. There were trash cans on fire, feet sticking out of cardboard boxes. Sally said she had to pick something up. I assumed it was something illegal because derelict community plus a midnight stop equals crimes. But she came back to the car with a smoked ham. It was massive. My boyfriend loves ham. The air spilled out of me like a popped balloon. Because, despite my better judgment, I was attracted to Sally in complicated and basic ways. In actuality, the guy wasn't her boyfriend. He was a guy she was manipulating. Some friend of a friend's brother or some such Sally spiderweb of a drama. Sally was, and I would bet a lot of money still is, a master manipulator. It's her superpower. I dropped her and her ham off at the house where the guy she called her boyfriend was staying. I wanted to go home with her that night, wherever home was. I wanted her to rescue me from my drab life at Mom and Owen's. Also that spray painting, the fun of that little baby disruption where she destroyed something that I didn't like, that was something that hooked into me instantly that night. It was like she gave me permission to do something that everyone else had considered bad. She normalized the aggression I often felt but never spoke to anyone else about. I hadn't ever articulated the feelings to myself at that point. I was angry a lot, and since the moment we crushed heads and defaced the bar sign, I knew I could do something with the anger. Not mindless stuff, but calculated, creative activities. The world opened up to me that night. When I got back to my mom's house, I stayed up late making lists of other things I could spray paint. I spent hours in thrift stores in the following days trying on what I called fuck you clothes. Pants and shirts that were too tight. There are pop stars who try to do this, test the boundaries of gender and femininity by wearing men's suits or ripped clothing. I wasn't testing boundaries. I wanted to headbutt people with my physical appearance. I wanted men to be simultaneously attracted and repulsed by me. I wanted women to feel challenged. What is the problem with tight pants on a big ass or hairy legs? Don't tell me you've got a problem with it. 
Ask yourself, what's so confronting about me, motherfucker? I idolized Sally. I was also trying to impress her, but she isn't easily impressed by anyone or anything. I don't know why she stayed close to me all those years. Maybe it was codependency or opportunism. It wasn't a unified pussy power mission. Our whole collective decision-making thing was more of a goal than a regular practice. Our beliefs about disruption were in opposition from the start. My methods were anonymous and learning-based and as nonviolent as possible. I made noise with balloons in a church or covered business fronts with painted banners describing the various offenses the places caused women. I always wanted Sally to change her methods and come over to my way of working, the seed planting. She never did. For pussy power, Sally used her sexuality to manipulate men. That's her version of a disruption. I'm not into men, I've never been into men, and the idea of getting physically close to any of the guys I've known Sally to get close to makes me want to puke. I could never stand listening to her stories, her exploits, her trophies. I cared for her many times in the aftermath of unsanitary behavior with men, not all of whom were targets. After years of using her body as her disruption tool, these encounters took a toll and Sally's mental health suffered more than her body. She was always so staunch and bad at expressing her feelings, but what I remember of that time was that she started looking through the documentation of some of the missions she had done. She knows she ruined families and relationships. We don't know how many, but by that time she had been targeting men for more than 12 years. These were planned and unplanned disruptions. We targeted men in all walks of life. Marble sent Sally on several missions I never knew about. A couple politicians, possibly. I don't ask too many questions. I do know that there are a fair few people who would want to hurt Sally if they had the chance. She can never go back to Tempe again, that's for sure. The last time I saw Sally, we were at the beach after a swim in the ocean. She was uncharacteristically quiet, which I don't mind at all. I always tried to encourage her to talk less so she wouldn't alienate people so much. She started sobbing. I had only seen her cry like this once or twice in all the years I'd known her. Minutes passed and it wasn't stopping. I didn't know what to do. I hugged her, held her hand. I gotta quit this. I'm hollow. No problem. Quit. Right now. I was relieved. Her risk-taking took up too much space in my worry bank. I had already been thinking about cutting off contact with her because I didn't want to be responsible for taking care of her anymore. I'm worried about you. I don't believe you. You just want to be the better one. The savior. Don't be like that. I'm serious. We can get jobs. Rent a place by the beach. I said. Sally laughed, but she wasn't smiling. You suck. I don't need you to feel fucking sorry for me. Fuck off. She stood up and went back into the ocean. I stayed in the sand with rage pounding in my head and drowning out my thoughts because she had rejected my ideas for the trillionth time in our relationship. I was done. I got up and went back to my car. I grabbed at all the stuff in the trunk and back seat that I thought was hers and I threw it on the sidewalk and drove off. I got arrested the next day. I walked right into it. It did get me away from Sally, but I also lost all of my history. Everything that made me myself up to that day. I text her again. Valerie is ready to aim. ASAP. 
If she doesn't reply to my texts, fine. I'll give up the whole stupid fucking plan. If she does reply, then there is some value in reconnecting. I don't plan to see her. I will just explain the narrative of the mission and she will do what she does, which is whatever the fuck she wants. Since I've been away from Sally, I've calmed down. I'm not fueled by hate anymore, but this Carl situation is different. I have that burning anger in my gut that I can't shake. I've walked right into the situation, forced it really. For what? But I don't want to quit it either. I can't let him continue to just do whatever the fuck he wants. He's practicing textbook oppression. I get dressed in some conservative clothes, black jeans and a clean white t-shirt. I put my hair in a ponytail, pull on my combat boots, change Frida's diaper again, and load up her diaper bag with everything I could possibly need to take care of her for the next couple hours. Her little hands flick the spinning toy that hangs in front of her in the stroller. It swings back and forth, side to side, and has her full attention. I envy her clean mind. No trauma, drama, or decisions to make. She's innocent and uncomplicated. Her needs are the most pure and basic. Food, love, and a clean butt. I push the stroller, turning it to avoid the large cracks in the broken concrete of the driveway. I need to mellow out, not be so serious. Sometimes I think I should move to an assisted living community and book myself in for a lobotomy. I try to focus on the walk in the trees. The street is mostly families like Cecilia's who have lived here for decades. Their yards are full of mature trees. Purple jacaranda, pink and white magnolia and palms, short and fat and tall and waving, way up there watching over the perimeter of the neighborhood. I cross the road and push the stroller onto the hard dirt of the empty lot that separates our street from the busy road on the other side. Cecilia told me she brings Frida here at night after she has tried every other method of getting her to sleep. I navigate the uneven ground, and after a couple laps around, Frida is asleep. Cecilia is a genius. At this point, I have a decision to make. The internet cafe I want to try is close to my house. I could turn around now and just paint some wood while Frida is sleeping. I could not check in on Carl. I could throw the burner away. I keep going. I know it's risky. I'm breaking probation. I'm looking down the path and I can see no clear outcome. But what about the other path where I do nothing? That outcome is clear. It's wrong. It's wrong to let Carl just do whatever he wants unchallenged. I have to cross two busy intersections and I keep missing the lights, so what should have taken me ten minutes has taken me twenty. Frida's naps are not long, so I feel like my time is being stolen from me. This should be enough to make me turn away, but I don't because I have a compulsion. Maybe this is what an addict feels like. One that has been sober for a while and happens upon some heroin in the street. My mind feels split down the middle. One side knows I will continue down the dark path and the other wants me to stay where I am. Go paint, it says. But it knows the darkness will win. When I get to the internet cafe, there are a couple loud dude gamers playing their stupid life-sucking games, which means she will wake up at any moment and I won't be able to achieve anything. The guy at the desk is older than me, maybe in his 50s. He's reading a newspaper, which I find weird because he works in an internet cafe. Can I get a machine far away from those guys? 
I point to Frida sleeping in the stroller. He looks at her for a long time. We don't get many of those in here, do we? I'm not sure if I meant to answer him, so I don't. He points me to a computer in the back corner of the room. It smells like antiseptic cleaner and wet carpet. I log in with my usual combination of band and breakfast, Captain Crunch, Thunder Pussy. I enter Carl's handle and read through his feed. It's been two weeks since I saw him on TV. Since then, I've watched the same show a couple of times, hoping and dreading that he would be on again. The rhetoric these assholes spew is so ignorant. It reminds me of the worst of the worst people I've encountered over the years. They don't even believe what they are saying. It's just about winning. I bet the Nazis thought they were winning. I guess I thought I was winning when a disruption went well. It looks like Carl thinks he is on his own path to winning. He's promoting his gun show appearance and doubling down on his anti-immigration rhetoric. I hear a phone ring once, twice, before I realize that it's the burner. I never tested the ring, so I had no idea what it sounded like. My hand goes straight into the pocket where I keep the phone. Mushy mushy. It's pussy power protocol to answer your phone in the assigned language. Mine is Japanese. Buongiorno, Sally says. Frida is still asleep, although I can see her little hands twitch. She won't be asleep for much longer. I should probably hang up. This isn't going to work out. How do I know this is you? She asks. I haven't heard her voice in two years, but I know it's her. Because it is. Well then, fuck you, you pathetic coward. I stay quiet. She's showing off, trying to gain the upper hand. I know the pattern. What the fuck, bitch? Frida stirs and opens her eyes, but they are unfocused and the lids start to fall again in slow motion. I want to reach over and close them myself, but I don't touch her. Frida waking up would shut this fragile situation down immediately. I stand up and walk away from the stroller, not far, but far enough to avoid Sally hearing Frida cry if she wakes up. What, you're not going to say anything? What a surprise. I'm hanging up, she says. No, no, I'm just surprised that you called me back. Shut up. I do. You have a lot of fucking nerve after years and years of nothing. Nothing. Yeah, I know. When she is excited or angry, Sally doesn't leave room for anyone else to talk and cuts through conversations like a chainsaw. She thinks she knows where a discussion is going and she wants to get there first. I want to give her the opportunity to get it all out of her system. This is bullshit. Wah, wah, wah. You are such a pathetic person. I hear the words come through the phone, but what she is saying is bouncing off me right now like I'm wearing some sort of mental protective layer. I know she is putting on a show. I bet she is in a room right now trying to impress someone. I can almost hear her smiling and raising her eyebrows to whoever is listening to give me a hard time. I don't fucking listen to you or anyone. Not now, not when we were friends, not ever. We're not friends? I hear the sizzle of her cigarette and a long exhale. What about pussy power? Are we still that? What the fuck do you want? I have an idea that I need help with. Sally kind of help. I tell her about Carl and his doxing and white power late life crisis. She's heard my stories about Carl over the years, but I doubt she remembers any details. 
My fucked up dad has morphed into the fucked up fathers, mothers, grandparents, stepparents, teachers, pastors, camp counselors, and all the other fucked up people who fuck children up. Where is this clown? San Diego area. Well, that's not going to happen because I'm currently unable to get anywhere. Do you remember where my mom lives? Somewhere between denial and a coffin. I used to think Sally was funny and cool, but it's clear to me that her destructive tendencies could quickly undo all the hard work I've done in two years. And then where would I be? Can you give me Shadow's number? I try to focus on my goals of the mission against Carl. What do you need? He's got a website, I say. So? I want Shadow to DDoS his site. I'm staying with them. You are? I am flat. I am jealous that Sally gets to hang with one of the coolest people ever, and I'm in the stinky room above a garage. Yep, I'm at their house right now, looking at that fucking blind should have been dead a long time ago cat. Where are you? I'm around. No, you're not. Nobody has seen you. You just ghosted. It's hurtful. I know, but I didn't have a choice. Bullshit. I'm on probation. For what? For that time I got arrested. What are you talking about? We didn't get arrested. I got arrested at the courthouse. Sally inhales and exhales her cigarette. I don't get it, she says. What don't you get? Why I haven't heard from you? I don't get why you're crying like a bitch about being on probation. Because part of my probation is that I can't talk to you or anyone from Pussy Power. But you're talking to me right now. I am, I say. So you're breaking probes right now? I don't get it. Carl. So Carl is a good enough reason for you to talk to me, but like nothing else has been for two years? Fine, I get it. This is a high-stakes situation. Fucking fireworks, high bitch. A pathetic loser, and I'm talking about you, by the way, not your daddy. He's not my daddy. Jealous? And you're willing to break parole and de-virginize yourself the jail pussy for this asshole? I have to go. Wait, what? She asks, and I know I'm winning. Do me a favor and have Shadow call me. Can't. Why not? They aren't using phones at the moment. Maybe never again. They don't use any electronics. Shadow is not going to call you. They don't use computers? No, they don't use fucking computers. You need to respect other people's choices. Shadow's a fucking genius on computers. Well, now that you're doing other fucking genius stuff, people change. Not you, though, I want to say. You're still as kind as a wild rose bush whose petals have all fallen off and the thorns are dry and unbending as they grasp at my skin with their sharp pokers. What would Julianne say right now? Sally, I have missed you. I hear a small laugh and another inhale and sizzle. Well, I told Shadow you texted and they said they missed you as well. What do you guys do all day? I just hang out. Shadow is in their room all the time working. What work? Artwork. They're an artist now. They make these huge paper rugs, like woven paper that they sell. Sell a lot. But that's why I'm here, because they're in their bedroom like 20 hours straight, so I make sure they eat. I'm a babysitter. Fuck, is all I can say. A lot of shit has happened since you've disappeared. I know. I saw marbles, but that was a laugh riot. Have you seen her? Tried to, but that rent boy she has working there didn't let me in. 
Armani, whatever. What's the web address? I know someone else that can organize the DDoS. CRJukes.com. Slow down. CJukes.com. I'll text it to you. I won't get it. I'm on a landline. Don't you have a burner or something? Fuck no. Shadow is right. We're being watched 24-7. Do you have a pen? I bet you have, like, a full head of gray hair. Not a hipster gray either. I bet it's real drab like an old PE teacher. You're fat, aren't you? I can hear it in your voice. Your big double chin is clogging up your airways. Did you get a pen? I ask. Hold on, I forgot what a sensitive pussy you are. I hate the way Sally says pussy. It's real dirty, like an old man who has pushed me into a dark corner of a bowling alley and he's twiddling his fingers towards my one. I grab his wrist and twist it like a doorknob and he screams out in pain. Then I knee him in his Aryan butterballs. Sally? Bitch. Can you get down south? Will Shadow be okay if you leave? You'll only be away a few days, or whatever you want. What's going on down south? He's going to be at a gun show next weekend. Guns. She says slow and sexy, the same way Cecilia says ice cream. I don't currently have the means to get myself down to said gun show. I can get you some money if that would help, I say. That always helps. I can give you $50 a week. Good to see you're still on mommy's allowance. Sally, the queen of biting the hand that feeds her. My mom's $100 a week often fed Sally as much as it fed me, but she has never let me off the hook about how my mom has supported me over the years, and she has never acknowledged how I supported her with the money mom gave me. I want to say that I have a job, but I need to keep these details about myself secret from Sally. Fine, yeah, sure, I need a break, Sally says, and my heart starts beating fast. I can't believe I've done it. I got it started. The plan is in motion. I'm shaking. On the walk home, Frida wakes up as soon as we get to the first major intersection. I walk as fast as I can as she wails into traffic. I have the urge to get in my car and drive over to Shadow's house because I know I could take care of them so much better than Sally. But I can't take care of everyone. I can barely take care of myself. What I can do is get Carl, and now with Sally on board, on her way, I need to do more research. I managed to find excerpts of Carl's ebook on a couple websites. They were buried in posts that were meant to look like legitimate reviews of his ebook, but it was obvious he wrote them because there was no criticism, only positivity. I walk the ten feet of floor space of our little house and read the excerpt out loud. Introduction each breath we take is a gift given by who knows who. Count your gifts. You may feel that abundance is on your side, but don't get too comfortable. What will tomorrow look like if things stay in the way they are now? Tomorrow will be a gray mess. Do you need to take measures to protect you and your loved ones? I think we do need to do that. It's not like anyone else is doing that protecting for you. History shows us that humans are their ego, and as this is known to be true, Today's humans, who we have both the fortune and misfortune of occupying this planet with, are borderline insane. A psychoticness has taken over the Western world. The Third World and the states of Islam have known this for years. That is how they maintain control over their flocks. But our place on the Earth, this ununited states of America, is a fluke in the world. We are susceptible, but not taken in by the myth that a lobotomized nation is a good nation. 
We can take up arms and protect ourselves. We are preparing an unholy war right now. You don't need to worry. The youth, the under 40s, are our biggest obstacle. We cannot succeed if things stay on this path. I have no idea what he is trying to say. Is he saying no one under 40 years old should exist? Word vomit. It's actually an amazing representation of every bullshit rant I heard as a kid. I would love to talk to Sally about his writing. One thing we used to do for fun was dissect song lyrics. Didn't matter what kind of song it was, it was kind of where our activism took a break. We would listen to the radio and talk about what Jolene was thinking. Did she really love him, or was it just a conquest, especially when the stakes were so high? Was it a drug dealer Mick Jagger was waiting for, or was he talking about his desire to have an openly gay relationship, or just sex with a man that night? Those moments of fun were few and far between with Sally, and in the past ten years we were getting older and not all that wise. After she got out of prison, things never really got good again between us. I started having the panic attacks. But we stuck together mainly because I didn't know what else to do with myself. When Sally went to prison for those two years, I thought I would be miserable without her. But it turned out to be a good time for me. I drove up to San Francisco and managed to ingratiate myself with a few students who were big box feminists. A big box feminist is usually a white woman who agrees with the most basic feminist values, equal pay, reproductive rights, and all the issues that have stayed at the forefront of what the mainstream understands to be feminism, but continue the cycle of violent capitalism by patronizing retail outlets that offer cheap goods that were manufactured in sweatshops by women and children. Now, I know sweatshops are out of style in these days of fast fashion, and because automation trends and manufacturing are changing rapidly, some retail outlets are hurting fewer humans during the manufacturing process, but where are those women now who lost their job to a robot? During my time cohabitating with these three women, I would accompany them on their weekend shopping trips, and if they needed their retail therapy real bad, some weeknights. Because I was disconnected from Sally, I allowed myself to be in the moment during these forays and use it as a research opportunity to see how the majority lives. In my mind, I was criticizing and condemning the store, my roommates, and the state of things, but physically, I was trying on the $3 shirts, smelling the candles, and admiring the homewares. My time in that little sunny apartment in San Francisco with those women gave me a glimpse of what I had run away from years earlier. I was already in my early 30s when I stayed with them, and I watched as these women a decade younger than me essentially chose their future from a list of options that were available because of their privilege. College? Check. Living in a cool city? Check. Kissing girls while looking for a man to marry and have kids with? Check. Binge-buying plastic crap with a lifespan of six months in the house and six million years in the ground? Check. Choosing not to care? Check. This was the same checklist I had available to me, but I chose to leave all of the items on the list unchecked. I wrote my own list and forged a less socially acceptable path. While I was with them, I stayed passive and didn't challenge them. I guess it was the precursor for what I did with Cecilia, although I wasn't involved with any of these women sexually. I toned down my opinions so there was no conflict in the house. I think because I kept my tendency towards self-importance in check, they liked me and let me stay on their fold-out couch and sometimes in their beds if they were away for cheap. For about three-quarters of what mom gave me each week, 
I covered my rent and utilities, and the $25 I had left went toward food, gas, and miscellaneous necessities as they came up. Their place was in the mission before the mission was taken over by the cool crowd. I tried to get up before the women, because their morning routine was chaotic. I took long walks around the city, and, like now, when I walk home from work in the dead of night, I felt hopeful. Cities in the early hours of the morning make me feel like that somehow. The new day offers another chance to do things right. Yesterday is gone. Today I can choose to be good. Something about the smell of the damp pavement always makes a dirty street seem clean. I always looked into the windows if the curtains were open. Not like a creepy person, but a glance to get an idea of what was going on in there. I changed my roots in case anyone on the other side of those windows took note of my prying eyes. I smelled coffee and toast, heard showers running and people yelling. All this mixed with the ever-present car exhaust from warming fumes idling in driveways, waiting for carpool buddies to run up the street in uncomfortable corporate heels, carrying a treasured coffee. I felt creative. My mind exploded with ideas of ways I could take what I had gained from the decade worth of disruption work and use it for something else. I could choose to be an artist or a community organizer at some corner nonprofit, or I could do my best to quiet my ethics and look for an office job, settle into my own apartment and grow hydroponic tomatoes while waiting for the weekend when I could hang out with my dyke friends at the dyke bar, drinking and pretending Monday was never going to come. The path never came to me in any clear way, so after I said goodbye to those women in the sunny little place in San Francisco, I drove home to Mom's. She stopped asking me about my plans long before. I think she realized that I was not sure what I was doing, and thankfully, she didn't push me to decide. Maybe she didn't care. That's not true. I know she cared. She still cares, even if I act like I couldn't care less. She cares enough for the both of us, which can be claustrophobic. Like her caring for me, feeding me, housing me when I need shelter, is trapping me. Because if she's there to care so much, why do I need to care? Mom didn't give me any money from Owen. I mean, she gave me money from the money she got from Owen dying, but it was an allowance and not a bulk sum that I could have used to make a new start. Although, I don't know what a new start would have been. Sometimes it felt like bribe money. You stay out of jail this week and I'll give you $100. You call me every couple of days and I'll give you $100. She never said these things, but I know, maybe unconsciously, that's what was going on inside her head whenever she wired me money or handed it to me. Now $100 doesn't sound like enough, but I never paid rent or other housing expenses. That money got me enough food and necessities to be almost comfortable some weeks, especially if I was squatting and there was a soup kitchen or free store around. If I had enough left over before the next $100 showed up, I would even treat myself to a trip to a thrift store, especially the ones that sold bags of clothes for $1. I felt like a rich person walking the aisles with enough money to buy anything in there I wanted. I wonder if my PO would be interested in my monologue on thrift stores and how they were my self-care back then. It's where I got to create new versions of myself, I liked trying on fancy strapless dresses with high heels and big hats, men's suits that always smelled like mothballs and ancient cologne. I tried to find big bright neckties and make up stories about the guy who wore it last, a bored wedding guest or someone interviewing for a job he was not qualified for. 
Those clothes allowed me to escape from my stuck life. I now know I was ashamed. I would stare at myself in the mirror with those old clothes and eavesdrop on the old lady volunteers talking about their gardens and grandchildren. Why couldn't I just pull back the curtain of that little closet dressing room and be a new version of myself? Why couldn't I take mom's offer to pay for college and get a degree and a job and stop doing the pussy power thing? I thought the college thing was a step too far, so I would fantasize about getting a job at a bakery where I could go work in the middle of the night and make bread. I would walk home, watching the sun paint the sky with its hopes for a new day. Funny how what you want you sometimes get, even though it's not the exact same version you dreamed about, it still works. My fantasies never had a baby in them, or probation, but Cecilia was there in a hazy form. Although my dream woman encouraged and celebrated my activism rather than just tolerating my animal and captivity behaviors like Cecilia does. When I was real low on money, I've been known to ask for spare change or go to a night shelter or community center. I would use the bathroom or showers before I took off. If it was a church thing, we needed to listen to a sermon before the food was served, the showers were unlocked, or the blankets were passed out. I enjoyed the sermons, or God speeches as Sally called them. Sally had religion in her childhood and carried a lot of negative feelings about the sermons. My family has no religion, no atheism, none of that. I could filter out a lot of the content and just enjoy the performance of the sermon. The preachers were a type. They were earnest and loud, not just loud-mouthed, but able to project their voices like actors in a theater. They were acting. They learned the scripture enough to put their own spin on it. Chapter blah blah. I have no clue about the Bible, New Testament or Old Testament Gideons, whatever. Many a night I have looked at the cover of those books and motels, but never cracked the thing. I know nothing in there will be of use to me. I'm a dyke who has spent my life fighting a patriarchal system that was defined in those books. I liked the preachers for the strength of their convictions. They believed the words flowing out of their mouths were a gift to us, like bubbles of wisdom that flowed from them. When those bubbles came into contact with the lost children in the folded chairs of their dining hall, we would be gifted with that wisdom and use that to finally change our lives and give ourselves to Jesus. When we changed our lives, it would be in part this church's work that helped us, and they could use that good news to help more people shower and eat, sleep, and get saved. The preachers reminded me of myself. Over the years, I had also stood at the front of rooms full of kids with dyed hair, piercings, ripped clothing, and the stink of the unwashed, convincing them of the benefit of a disruption. Unlike the preachers, I did not have a powerful institution supporting my pursuits. I had no one except Sally, Marbles, and some random women through the years who helped us out. Nobody tithed pussy power. Nobody crowdfunded us. We were seen as a bunch of bitches who were a nuisance. I thought our work was as important as the work of any nonprofit. It was altruistic work. We were working to ensure that future generations of kids didn't grow up in a world that saw them as girls and boys and defined their futures based on those gender norms. I wanted children to grow up in a world where gender did not predetermine their levels of success or limit their choices. Maybe even a world where we live communally and grow food for a society not based on capitalism, but based on trust and love of thy neighbor. That's the only Bible thing I know I agree with. If my neighbor treats me the way I want to be treated, I will love my neighbor. I'm still waiting for that to happen. My current neighbors ignore me, so I ignore them. 
Maybe ignoring people is a form of love. Sorry, I missed your call. Everything feels so upside down without you.